Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Geomologist Presents. It's been some time, I just realized, since I've actually talked about the games that I played. I think, well, we talked about, Amy and I talked about Chupacabracon, but I played a few games since that episode dropped in May on May 8th. I played um, at least one session of Reaver, and uh, Jason Connolly did a great job of recapping that in his latest Nerds RPG Variety Cast episode, which I'll put a link in the show notes to. And maybe I'll talk about it here because he does call-in, because we're going to have some call-ins as well. We have a couple call-ins from Jason and one from Joe Richter, uh, specifically about the or referring to um, the Green Reaver Cons callback episode discussion and the Twilight 2000 uh, urban operations episode I did with Joe Youngers. So I'll talk about that to some degree at some point. Um, I know we've had at least one session of Kingmaker and I had to cancel one, unfortunately, or was it Abomination Vaults? I had to cancel one session of Pathfinder 2. I know I've had at least one group game, maybe two group games. Um, yes, I've had a game or like in-between game while I'm prepping for the Horned Rat, the continuation of the Warhammer Fantasy game, but we're pushing that off until kind of mid-June because there's some people traveling. And then I asked my players, do you want me to wait to get to start? And they said, of course, yes. We all want to be here. So don't start without me. Grr. Um, no, there was no grr. They're all a very happy bunch. Um, we, but we have played, so we did play like an interim game. We played a session of the Iron Kingdoms 5e. Uh, these players had, we've done Legacy of the Witchfire, which is the adventure that came with the Iron Kingdom's Requiem product Kickstarter from, I think, last year. And we kind of play, I think we played that online. I feel like we played that online um, for some reason. And then and maybe, we, yeah, maybe we played that online, did we? Partially online and partially live? I can't remember. But anyway, yeah, we did play it online because then the character said, oh, yeah, let's just continue that. And then I need to download my character from World 20. So we play, We took those characters are now fourth level and are doing a one shot. And we should finish that up actually this coming Thursday. And then we played an episode, at least one episode of, of our Star Wars Rebels game. And this last one was very interesting. Um, I guess I want to talk. I, I probably won't talk about the... Uh, the fantasy games, um, the Kingmaker, uh, the Iron Kingdoms, the Reaver. I mean, again, Jason did a great job of talking about Reaver already. So I'll talk about like the sci-fi-ish games, um, both the Twilight 2000 and our awesome Traveler game. And that's actually what I'm most excited about is kind of the last couple Traveler games that have occurred. So I'll have to update you on those. So, but first I think we're gonna get cut up in Twilight 2000 and I'm gonna preface it um, what's been going on with a call um, by Jason Connerly. So I sit back and enjoy. I don't think it's going to be that long, but you never know with me. I talk a lot and I like to get responses and reply to them because I think that's, that's awesome that I get call-ins and that's to me part of the fun of it. So it's, it's like a debate, right? So, um, so, so I, I feel like it is 
it's not an obligation, but I think it honors the caller to respond to them. So uh, here we go. Jason's up first. And I think you all are going to sing along to his theme song? Probably. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. Hey, Carl, Jason here. Listen to your latest episode where you have Joe on as a guest talking about Twilight 2000. And Joe's a great guest. I hope you can get him on again, talk about other games in the future. But I just want to comment how it's interesting. So the encounter card, you know, Joe mentioned that there were, you know, 50 whatever that came with the game and then another 10 or 12 that came with this expansion. And how they added some freshness into the game because we've gone through most of the originals. And I, I just think it's a mindset thing. I'm not saying it's Joe's mindset or your mindset. I just think RPGs in general, the idea that you can't, that you're stuck with what you're given, right? That, that I have 15 counter cards, so I, I only have these 15 counters we can cycle through. Where And I know you don't do that because I've played in your games where you've improvised and made things up on the fly and all that. So I'm not accusing you of doing that, and I doubt Joe does that either. But it's funny because the way Joe said it made it sound like it was only possible to encounter what was on those encounter cards. And I, I'm not saying that's what Joe meant, but I know for a fact there are groups out there that play that way and the groups out there that won't improvise and will only do what they're given in a setting. And, and I think that's... Um, I think it's interesting. If the group's okay with that, that's fine, but but then they lose out by not adding to the setting. And I know that's kind of a common theme my calls years call to you about, you know, for people to break out from the setting and not be captive to the to the game company's world. But it, it was funny that that conversation kind of fell right into that topic. So anyway, let me get back to the episode. Hey, Jason, thank you for that call. And I would say I, I have the cards, I have those props, and it's in it's re, uh, printed in the book. There's a section on random encounters for the referee, and it has like all these cards kind of reproduced in a bullet type of format. And you, the procedure is you uh, draw a card from your card deck, your standard. 52 card deck minus the jokers i don't think there's things for the jokers but um and then you look at the card and see if it if the tags are appropriate like there's tags for day or night there's tags for on the road or in the wilderness urban encounter or not urban encounter and you can roll with it and i've used some of them but i don't use them as much as i use um, sort of a random encounter situation so in the products that I've been using, whether it's Krakow or Black Madonna or Pirates of the Vistula, I've been using the random encounter, random encounter tables that are found therein. So in Pirates of the Vistula, if you're on the river, there's an encounter every shift. And if you're on the land, there's an encounter. But I kind of mix and match those depending on what's on shore. Uh, right? Sometimes the encounters make sense where like they're passing a village and people see them or not, uh, or they're going under a bridge and there's like a, some marauder setting up to, um, make, to get a toll, to collect toll or extort or 
you know, kill, maim, whatever. So, um, so yeah, I've been, I use mostly that. I mean, I will, when they go kind of outside of the Vistula area, then I'll draw the card and see how it works. I think what's also kind of cool is you can randomly determine the disposition of the NPCs in the encounter with the card draw as well. And I have that deck available. And then if the player characters are static, there's another random um, encounter table that you will use to see if someone comes by their camp, which I think is pretty good. So, so a lot of this, it's not really, and I guess the, the, the saving part of the cards is that they give you like an encounter and the setup and the motivation, um, which could lead you to think that you're like a kind of at the whim of the designers. I've modified those. And of course, if you need to reuse them, you can't just rehash the same encounter. We're not going to run into a, a lone dog again in the middle of the woods, right? Uh, that just seems boring and old. So, so yeah, so, and then with the ones from the original products, well, you know, they, you just roll randomly and then it tells you kind of how many, and you've got to determine why they're there and what their motivation is and what they're about. Um, when it comes to like NPCs that are encountered in a random sort of fashion, uh, the, the ones on the, well, most of them, they're where they're at on the river now, they can run into like trouble and NPCs in the water. But for the most part on the river, it's been like river hazards, shoals and, and uh, hidden things under the river that can damage the boat. And I think they've, they've only had a mishap once or twice so far, which is not bad. So, um, so currently, speaking of Twilight 2000, I guess we will talk about Twilight 2000. And currently, the, this last session that we had um, last night, which was May, I think it's the 23rd. So May 23rd, we had a session, and it finished a, our kind of a two-session um, extended fight, the first battle of Gora Calvaria. So the players on the Vistula Queen had come upon this town, and this town was led by this uh, Catholic priest, and he's trying to start like some sort of commune here, um, egalitarian commune or you know, farming community in the wake of the the more or less the apocalypse. But he's currently being extorted by some uh, nearby marauders, and he kind of he got a, he gave the player characters a lot of intel. Um, on these marauders, and he said, well, you know, if you can spare us ammunition, they want ammunition and money or fuel. Um, so that was the initial proposal, but the players are like, well, why don't we just stop the marauders, because that's what we do. So it's interesting is that there's two bridges into Gora Calvaria, and um, one is a bridge where a train would go over, and one is a bridge which is further north downstream on the Vistula, and then one is like a a road bridge and what was very cool is I was able to use Google Maps to find like pictures of the situation um, and it really hasn't changed much for the last uh, 25 30 years so I, I feel it's you know it's fine to use contemporary map for that and then in our minds we even if we use a Google map to lay down um, the grid of the combat which I did at a hundred meter scale, which included um, this, the Gore Calvaria 
on one bank and then the approach to the, the town on the other with the two bridges. Um, it looked pretty cool. And we were able to, I was better able to communicate the situation with the players and they set things up. They put IEDs on the bridge to, to trap potential um, marauders. And, the mara and then they also, um, yeah, they also did some, okay, yeah, so they set this up. They knew when the marauders were coming. They had previously, they had previously um, done some recon on the town of Otvark, and they learned that there is probably a large uh, naval-type brown, uh, brownwater navy flotilla uh, of the enemy um, that worked, that this guy was run by this person named the Admiral. They had upwards of, of uh, 30 boats, maybe up to 40 boats, including some large boats, not as big as the Vistula Queen. Um, and they, this admiral was a proxy or worked for this, uh, notor this figure that they're hearing about named, uh, called the Black Baron, Baron Zarni, who is operating a very large marauder group, uh, maybe numbering in the hundreds, if not thousands, uh, in the ruins and near, in and around the ruins of Warsaw. So, uh, the players, uh, they did spot like some like a reconnaissance vehicle from this group that was going to come extort um, the town. And they dealt with that. They took them out the night before, but that kind of changed the operation in my mind for the group of marauders. Um, so since they lost one of their number and couldn't, and they're supposed to report back, they're like, well, something's up. Maybe these stupid townsfolk are going to cause problems. So we'll send some reinforcements. And so while the three vehicles came, two of them with, with actually with, um, with some 82 millimeter mortars and one with a PK machine gun with about four men in each um, coming down the road at the same time, one, the uh, sniper spotted like boats coming, coming up river. So a big fight ensued and it was actually pretty cool uh, to see how things worked out. Uh, there is the, the, crew, the, uh, the Free Krakow Coalition has two um, armored personnel carriers in there, as two armored personnel carriers and a bunch of other different vehicles. So they have a BMP and the BMP kind of took out right away one of the Jeeps and was fire, the people were firing, the sniper was kind of firing at people in the, in the Jeeps coming across the bridge and then turned his attention to the boats. Um, the M113 that the crew has, which is manned by some Americans, the Americans, actually NATO forces, because there's a German woman there um, in the group, uh, kind of really did a number and probably was the MVP of the whole fight, um, which did go over two sessions, by the way. So the M113 with the 50 cal was kind of the MVP because they laid out a fire against two of the boats, including a boat that had a a very large uh, gun, like a 120 millimeter mortar, uh, but not a lot of ammunition. So they only fired once into the town as a warning. And I think they're going to next line up to try to shoot the Vistula Queen. Uh, but um, while well, the 50 cal took out, took out the, right, the equivalent of the bridge on this boat and just then the boat the, killed the driver. Um, yeah. Uh, 50 cal, you know, onto a, fiberglass or aluminum boat, uh, not good for the boat. So the boat goes out of control. People are jumping out off the boat. 
um, really kind of fun use of suppressive fire mechanics because it really wasn't in the book. But you know what happened? Are you going to stay on the boat, or, or the boat's not really on fire, um, and that you would bail out? But there's a chance that someone might be brave enough, or just hunker down because they don't want to get shot at. If there's 50 cal bullets and other bullets spraying around, or your buddies are being dropped by a sniper somewhere, um, so so yeah, that that boat was out of control. Eventually, it crashed, um, and then people like flew out and were injured. Um, one of those people did at one point try to jump back on the boat to salvage one of the NPCs, the enemy marauders on the, in the river, try to go out and salvage um, like some weaponry from the boat, but the sniper took him out. Or was it the 50 cal? Anyway, he got taken out before he could do anything. Uh, one boat actually of the bad guys did land, but uh, it was kind of neutralized very quickly. And then the player characters actually, or the Free Krakow Coalition actually ended up capturing um, some people on that side, on the sort of the boat, riverboat part, um, they destroyed the boats, they took people out, uh, they captured two boats, and uh, took, I think, like four prisoners, because at some point, the marauders were like, I don't feel like drowning in the river, um, please pick me up, I'm just hanging out here, we're all beat up and injured, uh, they just kind of lost the will to fight. Now, on the other side, with the, with the, uh, the jeeps, with the mortars coming up, the BMP just made a mess of them. Um, took out, took out the, the, there are two boats, so you can imagine the situation, there are two bridges, um, coming, or two jeeps coming on, along the bridge, the BMP destroys the one in the rear, and the forward one just gets blown up by an IED, and it's just, all the, all the marauders inside are more or less neutralized, um, killed. Now, now, one of the initial jeeps that was hit uh, by the BMP, uh, the the bad guys kind of bailed out of it, and um, were trying to do trying to reach the river, uh, but they were spotted and one was shot, and eventually they saw that this is a lost a lost fight, so they kind of booked it back to the road and are probably heading back towards Otvark um, uh, to get reinforcements to let. Um, their superiors know there is uh, uh, this is going to be a tougher tick to dig out of uh, these Gora Calvarians. So, so we'll see. They did collect a lot of gear, which was pretty cool. Uh, essentially, like the Free Krakow Coalition won the day um, pretty handily. No one was injured. Um, no, I mean the really the bad guys never had that. They shot at the. Oh, that's not true. That one of the crewmen on the Vistula Queen was injured when uh, they were able to, some of the boats were able to shoot at the Vistula Queen. Um, and because that's the only thing they saw really that they could shoot at um, because the, the, uh, the driving with the BMP and the M113 was very tactical and behind cover and in forest. And, um, and then the, the advantage that these, APCs have is they have superior um, sort of electronic capabilities, sighting and stuff like that, right? So IR capability and and range finders and stabilized platform, etc. So um, so actually, I gotta remember that. I think I screwed over the player characters because the BMP gun is actually stabilized. All right, good to know. Good to remember. Um, or the yeah. So the any shots with the big gun the coaxial or the um, automatic grenade launcher 
wouldn't be affected by the movement, at least, of the BMP um, because of fire stabilization. I think it might only apply to the gun, but uh, I'll have to check that out. So uh, it, was, it was cool. I mean, I think um, some pl- most the players who not normally com- com- are not normally combatants were kind of a little sidelined. And then because of the scale of things, um, it seemed when they were driving or or moving, it was very incremental movements, right? So it's a 100 meter meter scale. And, um, most combat is done at, maybe I should have, maybe I got to think about this. Most combat is done in 10 meter hexes. So when a vehicle is rated that it can go five, that's 50 meters. Um, so it's really like half a hex per round, but then you can, you know, make your, roll your drive roll or your mobility if you're on foot and go like 10 meters more for each success, but it's still, you know, incremental movement. So I got to think about that. Maybe if, if someone's just, but then, I don't know. Uh, You got, I kind of like the simulationist narrative or the simulationist feel of Twilight 2000. And I don't want to make, you know, I don't want to, you know, hypersonic vehicles, moving around all over the place right so so we'll see and maybe limit actions to theater actions to 10 meter scales but it was such a big theater of operations in this particular fight i think it was worth it Uh, so we'll see so the player characters are probably going to chase those guys um who are who have fled on foot those marauders who have fled on foot and then uh the ones that stay behind the um of the free crowd coalition are going to be part of the cleanup and salvage uh, so we'll see how things go and that was that's like so we're going to play we play every two weeks so we'll see how things go uh, next time we play uh, tales of the free Krakow coalition for twilight 2000 fourth edition Yo, Carl, that was awesome, awesome to hear one of your players on this show. Um, what's up, Joe? You did an awesome job, man. Uh, I think <laughs> I think it's cool that you were in college when I was one years old, so that's pretty dope. <laughs> this hobby, oh man, this hobby brings together all sorts of awesome people. Yeah, dude, Carl, I really like that you had Joe on because it, you know, it just gives all of us, the listeners, just a different perspective on the game and the system and everything, man. So thanks for having him, Joe. Thanks for being on the show. Anyway, that was awesome, man. And uh, I'll talk to you guys later. All right. Peace out. Hey, Joe Richter of Hindsightless Podcast and the Wheel and Woe former YouTube first Pathfinder actual play YouTube thing. So, uh, yeah, it, it was great to have Joe on. I hope to get other players on. Um, I've had talks with other players before. My home group is kind of reluctant. I don't know why. Maybe they have secrets. They don't want to be on a podcast or YouTube video. And let's see. And then for, I have overlap in a lot of groups. And of course you come on and um, Jason's come on and you've been in my games. 
and Amy's come on and she's in my games. I do want to talk to her. We are supposed to talk about our Call of Cthulhu a dual game, um, which is maybe expanding sometimes, sometimes not. And I should get some players on from the Traveler game. Um, we'll see if it's Joe again or maybe uh, Matt Wagner or um, BJ Boyd of the Alien, the Arcane Alienist. He hasn't been on in a while or podcast for a while, but he's willing to jump on. Maybe we can talk about Traveler, but I think that's a great idea uh, to do that, to get a player perspective um, as I bounce questions on them. And and he he did say, mean that Joe was in college when Joe was one years old, not me. I was in college from 88 to 94. So I don't know how old you were then, Joe Richter, but uh, let me know. You don't have to let me know. Um, anyway... So, let's talk about the next game. I think that we will talk about will be Star Wars, because it'll be quicker. Although I did mention Traveler. Let's talk about Star Wars first. So, we've had like two sessions of Star Wars, and uh, this seems focused on this mission to rescue, liberate um, a prisoner from the capital city on the world of Onderon. This prisoner is someone that they, as I, they, so previously, let me back up, back up, back up. Characters are rebels. Uh, this is before the Battle of Yavin. They've captured a listening post that they wish to convert or use to find out what the Empire is doing. Uh, and now they're on this world of Onderon. And they've already met one of the person who kind of resupplies the Imperial listening post, but convinced this person uh, to join their cause or at least not say anything to the Imperials. Unfortunately, uh, she was captured when, or she was kind of detained, let's just say detained when she returned because her flight schedule was off and the Imperials are paranoid about partisans on Onderon because of its long history of having trouble, uh, civil trouble and strife, and also because of these infamous beast riders that harass the Imperials just because uh, they're not, the beast riders are not affiliated with the rebellion in any way, and that is actually a faction that the player characters hope to um, court at some point. However, they don't want, they don't want the, um, necessarily yet for their location to be known and they feel an obligation to rescue this person so they motor um, they don't fly there they kind of take speeder bikes uh, to the capital city and um, meet with people there find out about uh, the, the palace where the where there is apparently a detention center um, under uh, on the bottom level of the palace uh, the players do some recon both like uh, hitting the ground streetwise uh, and finding out about things and uh, observing it. And they do discover there is like kind of like a servant's entrance and a back entrance. And they do discover that their regular patrols go between this uh, palace that the empire has kind of commandeered and the imperial base that is uh, further, the kind of close to the capital city, but, but a little bit like about a, you know, a day's 
patrol away, right? A day's uh, drive via patrol away. And they find out that there is a schedule of patrols that go. So the first, so they decide that they're going to uh, stop a patrol and then infiltrate the base in disguise as uh, various agents of, um, right, as actually Imperials, right? So that's what they're going to do. And it works pretty well. Uh, they stop, they kind of do this, the old trick of putting the log in front of the path. Um, they take people out. Uh, they kill a couple of scout troopers, uh, but otherwise uh, they kind of knock them out. But then they just leave them, leave them in the jungle for the jungle, the pretty dangerous uh, jungle fauna on Onderon to deal with them or take care of them. It's kind of mean. Uh, then they disguise themselves. The crazy thing is there's no humans and the Imperials don't like non-humans. So they, fortunately, most of the, most of them are, they can get into the stormtrooper outfits more or less. They're not so strange in makeup that they can't get into stormtrooper outfits, including scout trooper outfits. And then one of the players is a, a commando droid and he dresses up as the sort of the lieutenant the ununiformed, um, unarmored lieutenant that was there with the group kind of puts like a skin mask. They have like, he has a skin mask and a disguise kit. It's kind of weird, but that's what he does. So from a distance, he'd look okay. Um, and, but close up, you know, they would totally tell it's not, it's not a real person. So, so that was, I, I took one session. And then the, the second session that we had, they infiltrated the base and I really tried to foil them uh, but I have, I guess I have fun players and we role played a lot. Like, uh, for example, the officer, apparently he was a very ambitious type of officer and he was questioned a lot about his sort of, uh, his wanting to kiss the, uh, the ass of the, uh, of the moth and in a, in some sort of officer welcoming party. And but I, like I said, I tried to foil them and make them stumble on their stories, but they did a pretty good job. And they really never generated enough, I say, you know, complications to merit me foiling their plan. They did a good job of, you know, for example, of sneaking around the palace, finding the intel they needed to where, where the person was. One player character even kind of crawled into the access ducts. And actually one of the key things was that a the, uh, the hacker, the slicer in the group was able to get a data pad early on um, in the situation and effectively infiltrate um, the computer system of the base and then was able to, for example, um, turn off the, uh, the shielding or the force fields when the uh, other player was crawling around in the spaces. The other players just kind of laid low uh, they had, they realized that there is like a timetable where they had to check in to like the barracks or their state rooms. And then they kind of did that. Didn't really talk to anybody. Didn't, when they were talked to, answered questions well enough, just use their, their RFID tag. Um, we had a lot of fun uh, with the, you know, stormtrooper numbers. I think since it was um, Onderon and Jareen was the, is the base, the Imperial base. Everyone had like an OJ, then a number, right? And then they, they've kind of figured out quickly scout numbers versus stormtrooper numbers. It was actually pretty fun just to throw down world lore or make up world lore on the fly that was consistent uh, with 
you know, Star Wars canon, uh, I feel. Uh, maybe not, but I made it up. It's our game. And, um, and the, I think they had a lot of fun with it. And a cool thing that the computer, the slicer did is he, 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 he kind of rearranged, he got into the roster schedule and made it so that the player characters uh, were on the, what they learned is that the prisoner was going to be transferred uh, to, to, for further interrogation um, up to the Imperial base. And they needed to get, and that was kind of their, they're either going to break this person out or, you know, stop the transfer or, you know, or grab the person during the transfer. And that's what they decided to do. They were put on the roster um, and they kind of made it, they when questioned about it, they made a joke about it. Ha ha, I drew the short straw again type of thing. Uh, and it worked out really well. And then we ended when they were, they, and the, the person who was crawling around in the spaces kind of told the, um, the prisoner to lay low and that, there, that uh, she was going to get rescued. They also learned that there were two member, suspected members of the Partisans, which was Saw Guerra's uh, rebel, you know, very extreme, according to Mon Matha, uh, rebel group, were prisoners. Um, so those were in the truck that the player characters were now kind of in charge of. There was another decoy truck. There was an ATST that they also, um, two players kind of crawled into the corral or snuck into the corral and sabotaged some, some speeders and the ATST that was going to be uh, deployed uh, for this transfer. So it was, it was actually a pretty cool operation. The only complication at the, happened at the end and the player characters, while they, their, their thing was going well, it would have worked totally perfectly. They would have captured the truck and sailed off into the sunset with very little loss of life and just some, you know, vehicle complications that forced uh, some, anyway, it would have been less lethal than what happened because the partisans decided to ambush the convoy, destroyed the ATST with heavy weapons, and I think opened fire, and the player characters quickly like removed their helmets and said, we're not part of the Imperium, we're, look, we're non-humans. And uh, that's kind of where uh, we left it uh, as the partisans were ambushing the already infiltrated convoy. So it should be pretty interesting to see how things turn out. But that's uh, my Star Wars. May the Force be with you. Traveler has been really fun. We're using the Mongoose Traveler 2nd Edition rules, and the last two sessions have been very interesting and very exciting. We were able to use the ship combat rules in Traveler the first time we've had ship combat in this campaign, and I thought it went really well. So there, I'm not going to give a full rundown of ship combat, but I really liked how it works. I think I could... I will probably generate or try to look for a flowchart uh, for me and the players because there are some times, since it's our first time, we kind of miss some steps. But uh, each combat round is six minutes in space combat as opposed to six seconds on ground combat. And there, it's broken into three phases, movement, attack, and actions phase. And the movement phase, 
the person, you roll initiative, and the initiative is based on the maneuverability of the vehicle and the pilot skill. So a good pilot is a good thing to have. And definitely the player characters took advantage of it. And, and then you roll initiative, an order of initiative, uh, the group decides and declares, the first group decides and declares what they're gonna do, how they're gonna speed, uh, spend their maneuverability uh, either to move, to evade, or to there's a couple other options that they might have. Um, during attack actions, it's pretty simple. It's like attack in order of initiative. Um, and then there, although there are reactions that one that a defender can take, for example, point defense or, or deploy sandcasters, uh, evasive action, for example, that's one of the things that a, a ship might save their maneuverability points for. And then um, in the actions phase, it's like damage control, uh, leadership roles to, or switching, switching to a from one department to another, uh, electronic warfare checks, or deployment of vehicles and things like that. Oh, docking is the other thing you can do during movement. So it's pretty straightforward. And I think it gives, uh, it definitely breaks it down into various roles for the crew, whether it's a pilot or an uh, electronic warfare or sensor operator. Uh, a captain role, and then definitely gunner roles. So I, I really enjoyed how it breaks things down, and it's not just one person rolling uh, during a combat round or sequence. Um, so, but how did we get there? So the previous session, this was actually from the 516 session. We played twice. Uh, we played 516 and 522. Uh, we try to play we one was a makeup session i believe yeah one was a makeup session because we missed a week or something like that um, because i had an event but um so here it is so it's they're still on doing so spoiler alert slightly we are running or the adventure is inspired by the death station adventure it's a classic traveler adventure it's been around since the uh, first edition of traveler um, around the little black book time and I don't remember which adventure number it is but in any so they've redone it for Mongoose Traveler and they kind of give you an outline and what's there on the station but the setup can be anything and the setup here was that uh, the player characters while going on a mission to grab uh, Roddy's one of their members ships they didn't want the Kierkegaard to just stay and dock and not make any money because hey, ships cost money, got that mortgage to pay. So they uh, were approached by this pharmaceutical company, Lasani Pharmaceutical, to run experiments on their more or less dry docked but refurbished, already refurbished ship. Um, so you know, it's a lab ship is very modular. They can, in the lab spaces, they can put their own equipment and bring it in and then remove it, etc. The only thing that the lab ship didn't have was like it hadn't been, you know, filled with jump fuel, uh, more or less. But it was already it was kind of more or less going to be done um, with everything that the player characters had refitted on it, and it could just be there to run experiments, like the Lasani Pharmaceutical said, in a controlled environment, geosynchronous orbit. Um, it was a good cell. They didn't detect any issues, and then they went off on their business. But when they came back, well, we haven't. The uh, Lasani representative, who is a, a WAP named Dogly Hash, said, well, we haven't heard from them. Can you see what happened you know, to your ship? Uh, blah, blah, blah. And it was a mess. So, uh, so here we pick it up. The crew uh, have been 
clearing the ship and they find the next lab space, which is the auxiliary lab. So Roddy decides to take a spacewalk from a nearby airlock to look into space and discovers and finds another surviving crew member who is a principal scientist. She sees him and she seems kind of off, probably also affected by these combat drugs that got aerosolized and begins to try and cut her way loose with a laser scalpel, like cut her way to him through the porthole with a laser scalpel, which won't work ever, but uh, it's kind of scary. He also sees the other survivor, this wayward Varger that they've been tracking and shot at and caused to flee in another encounter, trying to sneak up behind the woman. So it looks like all these survivors are kind of, you know, they're playing, you know, uh, what's that? What's that movie? What's that movie? Um, Hunger Games. They're playing Hunger Games aboard the Death Station. Um, so whoever survives is the best. So, uh, but you know, since Roddy's in radio contact with the rest of the crew, he radios them, and then they kind of go through the iris valve and engage the two drugged-up sofons here. The Varger is taken out quickly. He's already injured um, and hasn't recovered fully. So Stephen takes him out, and with, while more shots from Dalmar and Dr. Arbidon take out uh, the woman, the scientist. She does scream to them, though, you can't stop my experiments before being knocked to unconsciousness. And then the crew of the Kierkegaard then explores the rest of the ship. They find a meat locker with the where they find the rest of the crew being used as like storage for food, I guess. And then with all the crew accounted for, uh, they also know that there's extra crew. Um, it's this passenger that had been abducted from the mercenary ship, uh, the Willow Dawn, the mercenary company being the unity of strength, uh, having a Swords World flag on them. Uh, but they're allowed to operate in this is extra imperial space although flammarion is an imperial controlled world it does have a scout base and a naval base so um the group also decided to try and track down the uh, galthan monkey it's like this eight arm a six-legged monkey and they kind of use i just ran this as a task chain uh, they used a sensor sweep they adjusted life support to corral the monkey and then um so dalmar and dr arvidon did that and then roddy and steven kind of went into the the quote-unquote Jeffrey's tubes, the fuel tubes, and captured the creature. Um, they used, you know, stun and I think animal, someone used animal handling. Anyway, the group realized they've been on the ship for like six hours, so then they returned to the pinnace uh, to recharge their batteries in the vac suit. And Drache, um, Dr. Arvidon, begins a process to clear the life support systems, but they definitely need pest control because they're not going to go through the whole ship and try to get rid of all the, all the rats that are there. Uh, they do try to um, interrogate uh, the saboteur, this guy, uh, I think his last name is Holcomb, and he does offer them a 300,000 credit payday from Butler Chemicals if they release them and give him drug information that they discovered. He says, he confesses to the sabotage, but he claims it was because they were testing on sapients. Um, Dalmar doesn't believe him, and neither do the others. So uh, the Lasani representative at, around this time, while they're recharging their life support um, on their vac suits. He, co he contacts them. His name is Dogly Hosh, like I mentioned, to update on their progress. Dalmar attempts to be coy. He leaves the communication vague. Um, and he, he ends the interaction satisfied, but he does notice that the Lasani rep was kind of looking off at others um, during the video conference here. There were other people that were off screen. So the crew discuss their options with the Kierkegaard, discuss their other options, and they calculate the damage to the Kierkegaard. Um, it's going to cost about half a million credits at, um, at the very least to fix everything. So uh, Dreish shares his anger 
uh, with his, that, that this venture and the illegal com- activities of the Lasani Corporation and their incompetence for letting a saboteur on board and then blowing things up has cost this half a million credit worth of damage to his ship. So that was what happened in the 516 session. And then we continued. So while the crew discussed their next course of action, Roddy was pinged by his friend, Michaela Marks, who's a scout in service at the scout facility on Flammarion Highport. Uh, she asked if they're all right, because this mercenary ship named the Valkyrie, that is, um, I guess, the register to a, another Swords World mercenary company called Saber Command, suddenly left the Highport. And she only asked this because Saber Command is also works for is under contract with Lasani Corporation, so maybe this is related. So so Roddy kind of shares his concerns, and then she asks if the Kierkegaard needs backup because the High and Dry is ready to go, and it's also been refitted with the particle barbette that it has, uh, which they call the Pandora's box. Uh, so the group is still also sort of detached scout duty and Roddy has a bad feeling. So he does say, yeah, come on up, but it's going to take her like 30 minutes to get there, you know, uh, prepping the ship, getting the ship prep, which doesn't take super long, but then flying up to orbit or flying into orbit or around the planet uh, from Flammarion Highport to them. So the crew then race to get the power plant going, uh, the maneuver drive up and the ship's guns. And they're all able to do that. Um, it, and I kind of started combat rounds here, so they're all able to do that. I kind of uh, took a cue from some of the damage control uh, tasks that they have in there that you can you know, power these things up in a certain amount of time, or that's kind of your action. So they're able to split the, split the work. And I thought what was really cool, too, is in Dalmar, uh, while they were doing this, Dalmar starts sending the packets of data to the scout via uh, encrypted channel, and he sends them, like, he does like there's this ability in Traveler that a task that normally takes X amount of time, you can make it go faster. So he took the penalty. I think he took up to like a minus four penalty to make sure it went out um, just in case, because you never know um, if this if a mercenary ship is coming. Well, six minutes later, they get their answer. The crew of the Kierkegaard are hailed by a Captain Marta Murray of the Valkyrie and are given a chance to surrender. Unsurprisingly, the crew say no and space combat ensues for real. So uh, it definitely helps that the travelers are pretty good at what they do. They have some Roddy, a long time scout courier and um, scout explorer is a very good pilot. And he maneuvers the ship while Drache is a master of things intellectual and is able to counter the Valkyrie sensor ops to avoid shots um, from a pulse laser. They don't fire missiles yet. Steven deploys a sandcaster just in case. And Steven is also his long service under the thumb of, of the glorious empire in Aslan space is a damn good gunner. So Delmar assumes the captain role of the Kierkegaard and he gains the crew an advantage. So he adds, is able to add his initiative mechanically uh, to his add his leadership to their initiative um and he rolls really well so they so then the kierkegaard suddenly gains the upper hand and though the kierkegaard sustains missile fire in a volley exchange which is pretty devastating um once again roddy and drach make the pulse lasers miss and steven then shows his gunnery prowess 
critically hits the Valkyrie's maneuver drive and jump drive systems. So Dalmor at this point, taking the captain on the captain role, warns the mercenaries that the scout is coming. But Captain Murray scoffs at this incoming scout courier ship with probably small weapons that can't really harm them. However, with their M-Drive partially crippled, it seems that the Valkyrie is going to try to dock with the Kierkegaard. And Roddy, this is, reminds me of like a scene in The Expanse where ships are dodging past each other and in and out. And Roddy deftly prevents the docking of the Kierkegaard. The second time, it's pretty close. I think they, the ship, the Kierkegaard only won by like one point in the die roll. It's an opposed roll. And it kind of, I kind of, Described that kind of the second time the ship deflects off, they deflect off one another, and then more laser fire and missiles are exchanged. Uh, but Roddy and Drache, even at close range with a lot of bonuses, they make it very hard uh, for the shot to miss uh, Drache, which, you know, spoofing the sensors and Roddy just doing the piloty thing. On the other hand, Stephen is destroying this, this quote unquote superior ship. He damages the sensors, opens a cargo bay to space. Dalmar also asks for the Merc ship surrenders, but of course they refuse. And, but at this point, I think the uh, Saber Command group has had enough. The Valkyrie, as Captain Murray shakes her fist over the comm, says, we will not forget this. And they decide to cut and run. It's too late for them, though. They're already So it looks like in space combat, it's like a cascade of bad events. So each time there's a, like each time you get like a critical effect of plus six or more, then you're going to do a critical a critical hit to the ship and and i will say steven with steven and drache's um sensor ops and gunnery skill combined and the closeness they were just lighting lighting the uh, saber command ship the valkyrie up and and also every 10 percent of damage to the hull also results in a crit so it's a, like a it's just a spiral down once your ship gets injured and uh, and and fortunately, the Kierkegaard only got hit once with missiles, and it wasn't that bad. I think it caused damage to the hull, which was already damaged. So their hull's pretty messed up, and it's going to cost even more money. Like another, add another hundred thousand credits uh, to the the pile, right? Um, but anyway, so it's just a downward spiral. So Stephen then takes aim at the maneuver drive as they're fleeing and destroys it. Does enough damage to just destroy it and this causes more damage to the hull causes a fuel leak um, also destroys more cargo i'm clear probably on board the ship though the player characters don't know there are you know even though probably the saber command has called a call called for a beat to quarters on the valkyrie you know some people probably are dead from this attack um, definitely some people in engineering um, or it might be dead because of the explosions in those spaces or the, you know, venting those spaces to space. So the Michaela and the High and Dry arrive, though, and since the ship is not surrendered, it is fired upon the Kierkegaard first. That is established. So Michaela fires a particle barbette, the Pandora's box, and just, just finishes the Valkyrie. Um, it tears a hole in the aft rear of the ship, destroys a pulse laser tur turret, and when the ship reaches kind of zero hull points, it's it's done. It's like a floating wreck. So it's floating without power and life support. And then the Kierkegaard catch up to the drifting wreck. The mercenaries try with a last-ditch effort to use repair drones to patch up damage. But Steven uses the sandcasters to good effect and scours them at close range. So that's like 
16 dice of damage, 16d6 damage to all these repair drones across the ship. And then Michaeli and Roddy are now negotiating with the Imperial Navy. There's also an Imperial naval base in Flammarion uh, to help remove. There's probably, they, they guess, they don't know for sure, but they guess there's probably at least 30 mercenary troops minus any losses from the, from the space battle and any remaining crew uh, up to nine or 10 maybe crewmen. So um, Stephen does cynically remind everyone that the mercs probably have about six hours to live before their air runs out. That is if, and that is if all the troops were able to beat it to quarters. So, uh, so that was a very exciting role. I've kind of done some work on the back end already to determine uh, what Imperial Navy elements are in system and what, importantly, what Marine elements are in system. And the player characters got very lucky, uh, I will tell you already. I think I let them know already, so they have this to consider. There are some patrol corvettes um, around which have uh, a, a Marines, eight Marines each. And that's enough to counter. But more importantly, there is a experimental Mazon gun battery doing exercises on the surface of the planet. And that can, well, Mazon guns will just ignore armor and they just kind of go through and will kill anything uh, within the ship. So they could easily, clear, they have that option that they could easily have the Mazon batteries kind of fly up and because they're on grav tank chassis, fly up and do that. Or um, maybe more interestingly, and as an exercise, they, there is actually an, a uh, company of Marine commandos uh, on station that could get out there and uh, board the crippled mercenary vessel and uh, take it out. So we'll see what their options are. Very exciting traveler stuff. This is definitely reminds me of a lot of, um, a lot of, I guess, it, sci-fi the sci-fi show that i've been wanting to see but now realize through the rpg here so thanks you to my players for sure um it was very exciting and very very tense that's what a player shared with me i mean you don't want to i mean your ship's done you're done if that if those marines if that if saber command had been able to dock the valkyrie that would have been you know a firefight on board the lab ship against an, a superior foe and the player characters were able to avoid that. So, uh, so now the Marines are going to come in and sweep it up. Maybe they'll take prisoners. Maybe they won't. We'll see you next time in, uh, in our traveler campaign, which I'm calling behind the claw because it takes place in the spinward marches, but it's been very exciting. Um, and what I love about traveler. Yeah, I know there's this like meta thing going on, but it's such a big verse that, the characters might do the characters do may not affect it although although i can see this becoming a like an incident leading up to maybe a future conflict with between the imperium and the swords world um so pretty cool all right that was pretty long so next we have a call from another call from jason connerly on uh, the reaver uh reaver comments that joe salvador made and that i made in response to that i think so um so yeah, we'll, we'll let him talk about it. I, so in talking to Joe Salvador, I played him this message. We'll probably talk at a later date after North Texas RPG Con and when he's getting ready to kickstart um, Reaver proper. But he, he believes there is some, a bit of niche protection in the game. That's, that design is by choice, but it definitely is not as blatant as in other 
uh, fantasy games like uh, Jason mentions D&D, specifically AD&D, and then uh, later incarnations of the D&D franchise. So uh, yeah, listen to I will probably let Jason speak and then comment and then um, close us out. All right, Jason, take it away. Hey, Carl, Jason here. Listen to your Green Reaver episode. And yeah, the those comments on Reaver are interesting. I didn't find it to be such a niche protection kind of thing. When we play, you know, we've got what? We've got a warrior. We've got a whatever Joe is. We, we've got the shaman and we've got a rogue. But I kind of feel, aside from spellcasting, we all can do pretty much anything. And we have, you know, throughout the the game, we, we haven't really done spellcaster, you know, specified where it has to be a spellcaster fight another spellcaster or something like that. We've definitely, your spells have been very helpful. There's no question about it. But, you know, you've, you're also a good fighter. And, you know, I've got a healing pouch just like you and and other people can try to do healing it doesn't have to be you doing the healing and stuff so so i didn't at least the way that um joe salvador runs it i i haven't found it to be such a niche protection kind of thing there's no question the fighter is a little more effective the warrior is more effective than the laszlo is more effective than the other fighters but we're all you know good fighters and and there's everything there are places people are better than other other people are right so the warrior's better at fighting and the the rogue can give out resolve and you can cast spells and stuff like that but it but it hasn't been to such a point that it unbalances the game where you have to have those classes like i like if we were just three warriors going through this campaign i i don't know that would be un, an unwinnable campaign by any means i think we could have, we would have had a tough time at some points. We would have had some of the insights that you got when Aslo talked to, or As Gold talked to the ancestors, and the sleep spells definitely helped us quite a bit. But for the most part, honestly, and healing, you, you've definitely helped with healing. But again, with, with the healing pouches and the herbs, I I don't know that it would be undoable if we were all playing barbarian types. So I I didn't see that niche protection thing, and maybe that's just by because we are playing in Joe Salvador's game and, and the way we play. But I I haven't seen it in that game near as much as we see it in D and D. You know, my rogue is fighting on the front lines. Where if we're playing A D and D, or you're playing, you, you know, Mincer Base or Mulvey Basic or something, then or Holmes Basic, then your thief better not be in the front lines, right? But it's not, and even your shaman's up there on the front line. So, yeah, I I don't know. I I guess I just don't see that. I tend to agree with you. It's definitely not as blatant as in the other games, Jason. But uh, there is some. I mean, you say that Askold is a good fighter, but I think a lot of times I'm just lucky and I use... Uh, resolve to good effect but if i get hit i mean like in that big battle that we had i got hit like you know twice and was nearly dead um in this last attack against the uh the killing tree 
I got hit once and was nearly dead. Whereas, you know, Laszlo, Carl Laszlo, um, can, you know, take a beating, right? There's no way I could sustain that. And is much better at fighting than ask, like, I would say, I would say twice, if not three times better at fighting, plus the, the exploits, which make the fighter class very cool and unique. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know how effective your backstab is, but I know when I ran it, uh, the rogue's backstab was extremely effective. Uh, so, so I think there is some, uh, I, I do, so it's maybe not niche protection in and of itself, but each class has some special abilities that definitely aid for the team play. And I, maybe I think that's what Amy was getting at, um, is that this game, she really enjoyed the game because it was, it was conducive to a team effort. Right. There is not a situation and there are other games I, I can see this, especially skill based games where a character has been able to to good effect or through exploit to become like a Gary Stew or a Mary Sue. And uh, in this game, it seems like you need all hands on, especially against like a big bad. So when they fought like the the tentacle sorcerer in um, in the quick start, uh, they they needed everyone's effort whether through spellcasting or being a distraction or like Amy's character tanking while the berserker, you know, just focused on, on, uh, damage, you know, things like that. And I, I really think that Joe Salvador has designed a fantastic game that really can pull. You really got to think to pull all your resources together. And that's what I like. It's not just, I attack and I attack. Like, what am I going to do in my action? What, how, let me look at the situation on the board and what, what can I do to help the team? And I think that is kind of a, a neat thing. It's a neat, uh, ends up being a neat uh, role-playing experience. So um, very much like what I just talked about in Traveler, like the team winning the day because of all their different actions at their different stations in the space battle. And that's, uh, that's, I think, what is an ideal RPG, one of the best game ever, or you're never going to get to that, right? It's like trying to reach infinity or the uh, hypotenuse meeting, uh, two hypotenuses meeting. Uh, you're never going to get there, but you can approach it, which I think is kind of cool. Well, anyway, uh, that's all for today. I apologize for the length, but I guess it is what it is. Um, I don't. I don't know if I divide these up, is that more interesting? It just gives more, more numbers, but, uh, but a shorter show, eh, we'll see. Any comments would be appreciated, and you can send those comments to geomologist at gmail.com. You can send them as a message or drop me a voice-recorded message there, or I have a SpeakPipe account, which I will link in the show notes, and you can also voice-record a message or send me a message as a DM on the discords. You can also try to leave a message and some people have, and it's effective ish on uh, the uh, Spotify for podcasters, formerly anchor. We are still the anchorites, even though anchor is gone. So um, drop me a line and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music is by TJ Drennan and my wife, Amy does the cover clip art. All right. We'll talk to you soon.
And remember, good night and good rolling.